Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Tim Kachuriak, the CEO and founder of Next After. Tim, thanks so much for taking the time today. Steve, thanks for having me. Um, I asked for a little bit of your time to record a conversation about how we connect with donors in their very unpredictable and human ways. But before we dive into the meat of that topic, uh, for people that don't yet know your work at Next After and your other um, efforts in community, can you just uh, give a little background on your work and yourself? I'd be glad to. Uh, so Next After is really three things. We are a fundraising research lab. We are a consultancy and we're a training institute. And I'll explain briefly just how those three pillars fit together. Uh, first, with the, the research lab, we focus on doing two kinds of research, both forensic research and applied research. Uh, forensic research seeks to look at large amounts of data across the nonprofit sector. And what we're looking for in the data is patterns that lead to opportunities to really unlock greater digital fundraising performance. So we're kind of hyper, hyper focused around digital fundraising. We believe like many that it is in fact the future of fundraising, mm -hmm. but it's still yet an underdeveloped opportunity within our space. Uh, the challenge we've run into, frankly, with our research is that the kind of data we're most interested in analyzing either doesn't exist or it's not readily accessible. <laughs> And that's because what we're most interested in is trying to experience the charity, the nonprofit, the NGO from the donor's point of view. And so we found the best way to get that perspective is simply just becoming donors ourselves. So the way we do that is about four or five times a year, we'll launch one of these major mystery donor studies, as the name implies, we'll go out and subscribe to hundreds of different nonprofit organizations at the same time. We'll monitor everything that they send us, every email, text message, voicemail, uh, including boxes and boxes of direct mail we have stacked to the ceiling. We analyze those pieces of correspondence and we wait for the organizations to invite us to become a financial partner by giving a gift. And when they do that, we'll go online to their website and give a donation. And then we continue to monitor how they engage with us over time. What we're trying to do is map that kind of new donor journey from the casual visitor to subscriber to donor. Um, it's fascinating work. Uh, as you might imagine, uh, what's always interesting to me is the wildly varying uh, ways in which uh, different organizations engage their supporters. But what always ends up happening is that I'll have two or three organizations that are very similar in terms of their size, their scope, maybe their area of focus. And they've got two radically different communication practices. So when we see that, we say, okay, if organization A is doing one thing and organization B is doing something else, how do we know what works best? So we take some of those, those insights that we glean from the mystery donor work, we use it to power the other kind of research we do, which is applied research, where we're basically using the web, not just as a channel of communication, but as a platform, a, a living laboratory, if you will, where we can rigorous to, rigorously scientifically test what works and what doesn't work. Um, and we've been fascinated with what we found. We've, we've now documented over 2,800 different online fundraising experiments across a whole range of different organizations. And we feel like we're just now scratching the surface. So that's a little bit about the research. We take everything we learn, we bring it over to the two other pieces uh, of our company, the Next After Institute, which is really the, the training equipping arm of Next After. We develop resources like templates, guides, eBooks. We do webinars a couple of times a month. We've developed eight different certification courses and all things digital fundraising. And then we, we hold an annual conference called the Nonprofit Innovation and Optimization Summit, where we bring in digital marketing leaders from the for-profit space 
to come speak into our nonprofit community and just really breathe new life and new ideas um, to that group. And then the final piece is the consultancy. So we use all the research, all the testing to really unlock insights that we can help uh, our clients. We've got about 37, 38 uh, clients across North America, primarily that we work with to engineer into their fundraising programs, the things that we find uh, repeatedly to work. Loads of interesting results as a, uh, from all of that. And I, I encourage people to go to the Next After website. We'll have a link in the show notes to uh, see some of the information that's available there. Uh, there's, there's just lots, but I'm so fascinating in the idea of um, how do people choose to communicate uh, with people who are interested in their mission and may become a donor with the right uh, information, the right connections, the, the right messaging, um, or may not, and, and give you that opportunity to learn from that and share those learnings with other people. Um, I, I should mention uh, when we were first uh, connected, I, I was interested that this is you know the Next in Nonprofits podcast and, and our work is Next in Nonprofits, Next After, that there's that commonality in our work of we really want to think about how this is evolving. What's the the next opportunity for people to learn from uh, what donors and, and other supporters are teaching us online? That all said, I, I was particularly interested in having a conversation with you about um, the, the interim space of it would be great if every single time a potential supporter of your work uh, indicated that they were interested or maybe even thinking about becoming a donor, that they got a personal phone call that somebody went over to their house and sat down and had coffee and talked to them about why their five bucks would be super important for the mission. But that's really labor intensive to think about every connection being extremely personalized. Uh, so on the other side of that is every connection being extremely impersonal. You know, dear blank, you have subscribed to newsletter. Here is newsletter. You know, dear blank, here we need money. Please send money. Um, and, you know, there's got to be an in-between space in there where we're looking at what tools can bring to personalizing donor experiences that really help people make that final connection to a mission and excitement. So in your work on your website, uh, you, you talk about the fact that, um, we we maybe there are some folks that think to themselves that what we really just have to have on the website is a really compelling uh, logic model of how we do our work and why we're the best at it. But that's not usually the thing that gets people to give, right? Can you talk a little bit about donors don't always follow that logical path? Yeah, Steve. I mean, giving is an incredibly irrational behavior. I mean, when you try to like, you know, if, if a spaceship landed and I try to describe it to somebody that came from another planet, say, I'm going to go give my money and, you know, somebody else is actually going to get the thing. They're going to experience the benefit. They're like, well, that doesn't really make sense. Um, but donors do get something back in return. Now, mm -hmm. it may not be a tangible benefit, right? It may not be like the, uh, uh, the, the book that you get in the mail from Amazon when you order it with one click, but the donor is receiving something in return and people get different things and they give for different reasons. And that's part of what we're trying to really tap into and decode through some of these tests. We're trying to understand what is the underlying uh, ingoing motivation or behavior 
that ultimately leads to a, a quality donor. Uh, so, so for example, like some people give because they want to belong to something. They want to be part mm -hmm. of something. Some people give um, out of a sense of guilt or, you know, they feel like they have so much and that they, they feel like they want to kind of give back to relieve some of that guilt. Some people give because they, when they do, they experience this warm glow as some describe it as this kind of un, uh, undescribable feeling of, of just, you know, well-being and, and other people give out of frustration. Like they want to see changes made to this issue or to that issue or to this problem in the world. And they're giving out of a sense of, of, of frustration or a, a protest gift. So, so there's all these various different motivations and we have a great opportunity to use the web as a laboratory to, to start to peer inside of people's minds. And and to ask them to be partners with us, and I, I like how you uh, phrased that at the beginning when you were talking about uh, you know who asks us to become a, a financial investor by making that gift. You know we're we're partnering with that thing because your mission has somehow become important to us. Uh, so there's the obvious examples of I'm a cancer charity. Somebody in your family has cancer. You know you want to do something, but you can't help them. You know through their medical journey. So you make a gift to a related charity because that's your way of connecting with that person. That's great. But the, the question I think for the cancer charity becomes, how do you know when that person came in because of a family member that was experiencing it or in honor of a teacher who passed away from that disease or whatever, you can't go have coffee with everybody. Uh, <laughs> so how do you think about that, that initial connection when somebody has already come to your threshold to make that connection? Maybe they even just make the gift right away without subscribing to a newsletter first or without following you on a social channel. Um, in those kinds of situations, uh, how do you learn from what people do to say, how do we connect with the reason that that person came through our door? Well, there's one simple way, Steve, and that's by asking. The donor. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's so obvious, but yet when we consider mass communication like digital, we use it almost as like this one-way street, this, this kind of like megaphone that I'm going to deliver messages to you, but I'm never going to allow you to speak back to me. And there's different ways that the donors speak to us. They, they can speak directly, right? Where let's say I send a fundraising email and they reply back and say, hey, you know, thanks, but you've got my name wrong, right? That's one way that they respond mm, is directly. Sure. But probably the greater opportunity for most of us right now today is to really respond to the indirect communication we receive from our supporters. Uh, the beautiful thing about the web is that we can track virtually everything. And we pay a lot of attention to, you know, the, um, I guess, kind of like our important conversion metrics like opens and clicks and responses and, and all those kinds of things. But what we don't pay attention to are what I call the I don't care metrics, right? Those people that don't open, that don't respond, that don't take the action you want. They're communicating something back to you through that mm. behavior. Many nonprofit organizations that we work with who are you know, very large organizations are not paying attention to that data and they're doing it to their own detriment. So as you look at your experiments and what you do in your consultancy, how do you think about uh, what you can learn from people that aren't even opening the email that they, in theory, signed up for? Well, one thing that you can, you can discern is that either they don't care or they have stopped caring, right? And so if you have that piece of information 
then you can use it to inform a strategy to try to re-engage them. So, so one of the things that we do oftentimes, especially with organizations that have very big email programs, is we'll do an assessment. We'll look at all of their email data over, say, a six-month or a 12-month window, and we begin to break down the, the audience into different kind of engagement tiers. So the people that uh, have opened or clicked or engaged with a message in the last 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, and then usually past 90 days, if they have not engaged with messages, especially if you've been sending on a regular basis, they're disconnected. Mm-hmm. And so then we'll, we'll put together a strategy to say, okay, let's go and contact these people and uh, test different ways of trying to get them to re-engage. Maybe that's sending them something of value. Hey, we just produced this brand new ebook. We wanted you to have it here, right? Or it may be sending out a survey, asking them a question, uh, or, or maybe simply just sending them an email and giving them the privilege of simply replying. Say, hey, I noticed you haven't like engaged in a while. Can you tell me you know, why? And you'll be surprised at how many people actually respond uh, to those messages when you ask, because that rarely, rarely happens in our space. And so simply doing things like that can help to just get people that may have gotten cold, go back to, you know, becoming, you know, more warm and engaged. So uh, those are some, I think, important learnings about folks that have become disengaged. And I think in my experience with a lot of people, when you ask them, it isn't that they don't care. It's that they care more about other things um, that they're doing. So when they have signed up for the 63rd newsletter that month, because it seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, and then, you know, they really care about five or six of those. And when those come in from those charities, they pay attention and they uh, read through and they do things. But by the time they get to the 30th or the 40th one that they've you know signed up for, it's not that they don't believe in your work or what that you're just not their priority. And I think that's, that's an important thing to learn from them. Them and and see if there's a way to help them re-engage at that higher level. But I think part of it is understanding if they are going to make that additional engagement of, I'm going to become a financial supporter. I did care about you for one reason at one time anyway, and I made a gift. What are we doing to um, use the technology that is available without thinking about loads of extra cost and, and loads of investment, but, but use what is there to record that? How did they come in the door? Why did they show up now? What is it about you know, our mission today that made them connect? So again, in that asking them category, um, I've filled out far too many donation forms my, myself that don't ask me why I'm here today, that just ask for my contact information and a credit card or you know, whatever kind of processing. Um, and I think that that's a, a, a space where more charities could be taking advantage. Uh, you've run some A-B tests on these things. You, you've done lots of interesting experiments over time. Um, how do you think about that? What can I reasonably ask for from donors at the beginning of a relationship when they're making that first gift that really helps us build a more solid relationship so that when they do get that email newsletter or they do get that next solicitation, they're more likely to open the thing. Yeah, great question, Steve. So, so um, this is this is not really a, a brand new concept. It's something that I think most nonprofits do as a best practice now. But but many organizations, when somebody gives an online gift, they'll put in place what's called a, an email welcome series or a new donor onboarding series, and it's basically a series of automated messages. This is something that can be done with 
basically every email tool now. I know Constant Contact and Mailchimp, and and then you know the HubSpots and the Marketos obviously do this in space. Mm-hmm. But 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 you know any tool can create a series of automated messages that go out over a period of time um, to somebody that has taken an initial action. Well, the biggest mistake that I see most nonprofits make is. Um, they try to give the kitchen sink to the new donor. Mm. Um, so, so for example, like if, if you, have you ever heard the expression, like, you know, um, don't try to be interesting, start by being interested. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so what we kind of have been, have testing and, and find, finding to be like very effective is instead of trying to tell the donor all the things about us, when they first make that gift, we kind of flip the script. And we ask the donor to tell us everything that they would like to share with us, starting with, hey, thank you so much for your gift. You know, it's going to accomplish all this great stuff. We'll be reporting back to you on like what happened to that, which is important. But by the way, just tell me what actually, you know, uh, stimulated you or inspired you to, to give this gift today. And then we do the, the most rem- un- un- like remarkable thing, but it's, it's probably the most profound. We actually like read all those emails that come back to us when people actually hit the reply button and mine that data. And then we use that to like then power other kinds of content that we're going to deliver to these people downstream. So it's that simple ask of, again, just asking people that first question. Another thing we'll do is uh, we'll have a a survey or we'll have uh, an email that will contain three various different links to three kind of maybe different projects or different paths that they might take and we use that data to then prioritize what they're going to receive next and next. So this is one of the ways that you can use the interactive behavior of your donors to really have a, a conversation through digital. So I, I think where I run into challenges with charities around those kinds of ideas is immediately thinking of, wow, that's going to be a lot of staff time. Uh, to listen to all of those responses that come back in and try to categorize that somehow and respond meaningfully to people. Um, you know, there, there's a, a concern I, I run into as somebody who spends most of his time in the fundraising space of how much are we going to put into that versus the actual program piece of it. Um, and I think that there's different levels of concern with the smaller organization versus the larger one that maybe feels like, of course, we invest in donor relationships. That, that, that's you know where it goes. But I think at some more medium level, there's a hesitancy around that. So do you see that in, in uh, your research or in, in fields where people are maybe thinking, yeah, I get that that's a good idea, but I'm not prepared to commit whatever it takes. How much does it take uh, to really have somebody scan through those emails and find out how to categorize them? Uh, I mean, not as much as you might think. Yeah. And, and you know, that is the number one objection that most people put up is that I just simply don't have the time that I'm like, but then you shouldn't be sending things to people if you're not going to give them the opportunity to respond. Because if you if you don't, <laughs> then then basically you're just treating that donor like an ATM machine. Like they're the person that's supposed to do all the things you want and, and they have no right to ever talk back to you. And I think that that's, you know, that's just poor stewardship. 
Yeah. I, I think there's some space in there, and I'd be interested in your thoughts about this for um, a level of automation that provides some customization, some connection, um, but maybe gives that uh, feeling of the systems can do some things without a, as much human intervention. So in this case, instead of saying, here's the open-ended field, why did you feel inspired to make a gift today? Um, uh, it may be something along the lines of, um, we're really grateful. Here are some of the major programming is that impact us if this is one of the reasons that you came in you know please click this box and then i get an automated you know reading of you and then give them that open-ended text box at the end of it that says if this isn't you please tell us you know who you are does that give you some middle ground between the amount of work and categorization but still gives you something to connect to that donor with or is that just cheating no for sure and that that's kind of like part of the mix. So when I mentioned like, you know, sending an email that has uh, multiple different links, depending on which link they click on, it's telling us something that mm -hmm. they're interested in. I mean, this is a very common practice that many e-commerce websites use. I mean, the, the probably the most like recognizable example is like Netflix. As you start watching things, they're learning about your, your, your interests and your uh, preferences. And then they begin to shift what they present to you as the next Thing that you should be, you know, paying attention to. So it's 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 simple things like that that yes can expedite the process, but that still means that like all of those things that you're deciding are the different options um, are really coming from the organization, not from the donor. So again, the the most important thing that we've found that again it's not very profound, but it is uh, very impactful. It's you know doing all that you can to understand your donor by listening to them. Right. And I think there's a couple of spaces here where um, this is really important. One, one is in donor acquisition, when they are first becoming aware of your mission, first becoming interested in maybe becoming a financial investor, uh, that if they're coming in the door because of an event, a relationship, uh, uh, you know, whatever it may be, that, that getting that information into whatever donor relationship management system you're using and really leaning on that is, I think, uh, an important and easy thing to say, you came in because we had the 5k and you're you know, interested in that kind of thing. Let's talk about that and learn more about your connection to the mission versus I'm just a runner and you had a cool 5k, you know, and I'm not, I'm not really into your mission yet, in which case there's some work to do in, in that versus, uh, you know, I can't stand running, but I did the 5k because my friend had cancer and you're doing a cancer 5k. And I, I just needed to do something for my friend. And that's a completely different relationship building connection to start with, with that person. But we've got to, as you said, ask, um, you know, why did you sign up for this 5k? Right. That's right. Absolutely. Right. And, and just to kind of back up, like <laughs> one of the things that we find when we do these mystery donor studies uh, and this is almost universal for everyone we do. Like when we actually like go to the nonprofit's website and we fill out the contact us form, say, hey, I was thinking of giving a gift to you. Could you answer this question for me? Uh, up to a third of organizations never respond to us. Never, wow, never no kidding. That. Yes, yes. Same thing on social media. I think it's about 26% of organizations don't respond to us when we message them on, on social media. So it's, huh. you know, th there's all these really exciting things that we could do with technology, but we're not getting the basic blocking and tackling right. And so those are some of the things that like are just low hanging fruit for every organization. And I, I again, get to this space with the, those organizations that are afraid of how much energy they're putting into the development work to say, well, we don't want to open up that door to just 
answer questions from people, we'll be doing nothing but. But I think that that's not my experience in the world, that the, the folks that, that actually take the time to ask that question through the contact form or to message you on Facebook or, or do a direct message on Twitter, um, there's not that many of them. It's not going to be a huge time-consuming thing. But if you get a connection with that person, uh, that's just going to pay dividends, uh, you know, not necessarily from that specific donor, but as they talk to others in community, like, yeah, I had a question, I asked it, they got back to me the next day, uh, and, you know, helped me learn more about what I needed to know, to know. That word really matters. I am honestly kind of stunned that you've found as many organizations that just don't have a, a fast turnaround on those kinds of queries. Yeah. And, and Steve, what was even more interesting, uh, a few years back, we, we did what was called the mid-level donor uh, crisis study. Oh, the, right. Yeah, I saw that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, it was really interesting. So instead of giving you know gifts of like $20 or $30, which is typical when we do a mystery donor study, we gave gifts of $1,000 or more to 67 organizations. And we had out of those 67 organizations, there was only two that called us, but we gave our phone number to all of them. Um, we found that some organizations never contacted us ever over a period of 90 days after giving that gift. Uh, and it really just like, I guess, gave structure to this idea that most of us have is that there's this like mid-level donor black hole that people can slip into where, you know, they're, they're not, they're not giving enough to be considered a major donor quite yet. Right. So they don't go on to a, a major gift officers, like, you know, core portfolio, but they're like too valuable for kind of direct response. And so they get pulled out of like either the mail stream or the email stream, and they kind of slip into this area where really nobody's paying attention to them. Um, and that, that was something that was just kind of like blew our minds as well. These are pretty significant gifts. And I don't think takes a heavy technology infrastructure to be able to um, track that kind of connection with people and plan for how to respond. I mean, that that's seems right. like to your point earlier about, you know, any MailChimp or constant contact thing will do X, Y, or Z. Seems like pretty much any donor relationship management software from very small packages on up would be able to help you structure a workflow for that. That's exactly right. So, so one simple practical thing for everybody that's listening, this is, if you haven't done this, this is like, this may be very, very illuminating. Go to your own nonprofit organization's website, navigate to wherever it is you give a donation and give a donation to yourself. Just kind of pay attention to the process, like how many clicks did it take to, to do it? What, what kind of information did you have to enter into your form? You know, what happened after you hit the submit button? Did it work? You know, <laughs> things like that. And you may be surprised. I think a lot, a lot of times there's just, you know, kind of like wires that need to be twisted together or switches that need to be flipped on because, you know, we're not really paying attention to that. Hmm. So I, I think relying to some degree on that technology to be able to help us means investing in something that will you know, be useful in that process. Um, and unfortunately, as I, in our very first conversation uh, that we had, I, I mentioned, I think that um, charities are, are so much more willing to put more money into staff time than they are into uh, systems and contracts and automation, um, even though a, an effective use of that staff time and that automation really requires that you have the right tool that, right. you know, maybe three or $4,000 with the software is going to save you $15,000 with the staff time, but it just just seems like that's a hard thing for some charities to wrap their mind around like, boy, I don't know, a few grand for software, that seems hard. Um, but it really does seem like um, having that fundamental infrastructure in place first 
then to be able to use it to, to twist those wires the right way so that you're doing those things uh, seems like are, are there too many people that are just getting this, uh, you know, a, a, a fillable form on their website that does the donor processing and kicks out a tax receipt right away and go, good, I'm done. I got the thing taken care of. Right. Uh, yes. Yeah. That that's uh, so, so here, here's kind of, if, if I were to create like a, a, a low budget, uh, but high impact tech stack. Here's the things that I would consider. The first thing is web analytics, right? This is incredibly important if you're going to do online fundraising because you cannot optimize or you cannot manage that which you cannot measure. Now, the good news is, is that Google Analytics is free. And mm -hmm. I've rarely encountered a nonprofit that doesn't use web or Google Analytics. Right. However, um, like, I don't know if this is a true expression, but I thought I heard somebody once say that like the average person only uses like 10% of their brain. <laughs> um, most nonprofits only use about 10% of what Google Analytics can really do. Yeah. Uh, and so it answers that first question of like, where are my donor donors coming from? Um, there's, there's UTM tracking codes that you can use and you can know all of that information you can integrate with e-commerce tracking so that you can then it's something you have to turn on inside of Google Analytics, but it'll tell you when somebody makes a donation. So not only do you know where your visitors come from, you know what pages they went to and whether or not they gave a gift, which gives you so much more critical information. So that's that's number one. Number two is uh, an email system. So you know on the low end, a Mailchimp, Constant Contact, they all they both have. Uh, some level of marketing automation built into them. They're pretty scalable. They're pretty low cost for small email files. They're based yep. on the total number of contacts. So check the box there. The next would be uh, some sort of online donation processing tool. Uh, there's all-in-ones that come with certain CRM systems, um, but the, the, you know, the best ones that, that we have found are the ones that are kind of like just plug and play because they can... Uh, enable you to create like standalone donation pages, which are really important. Um, so there's some really good tools for that. I know Fundraise Up does a great job with that. Um, Raise, Raise Donors is another great tool that does that one specific thing. Um, and then your CRM is your biggest question, right? So, you know, <laughs> there's so many different flavors and, and different options. It really comes down to like, you know, what is it that is, uh, the, the distinct needs of your organization will dictate that. So, so that's, those are like the four key components. And once you've got them though, I think there is that, that commitment to starting to use the technology. And that again, involves some level of staff time. Um, but I think that you, you raise some really interesting case study pieces in this where you say, you know, why did you come in today? Uh, or, you know, what was it that inspired you to give a gift? And when you learn something about that person, there's all sorts of next step things that you can be doing, but it requires the idea of we're going to do some segmented communication so that we're going to know that these donors that are really concerned about this part of our mission will get more information and engagement on that part of our mission than, you know, donors over here that maybe have different things. And if you've got more than one program area, uh, I think it's important to realize all these tools can do that segmentation with you, but you have to listen to the audience about what they care about and why they're connected to you and, and help them feel part of that. And those don't often happen. I think sometimes I, I, I tell the story that I was on a board of directors some years ago for a charity that I unsubscribed from our own newsletter, uh, because the only thing that they felt was reasonable to do was to pummel everybody with everything all the time. I'm right. like, I, I cannot read all of this. 
Um, I need a lower level of communication. And the, the staff response was sort of like, no, but everything we're doing is so important. I'm like, not to me. <laughs> I realized to you, it seems like the only thing that matters. But if it's a drinking from the fire hose or not having anything at all, I'm probably going to just unsubscribe and you've lost me. Give me some choices as a, as a donor and a supporter to, to not only say, what am I interested in, but maybe how often am I willing to hear from you about it? That's right. That's exactly right. And, and that's, that's kind of a newer trend is, um, you know, making some of those initial emails in a welcome series. When I said like, ask them what, you know, questions of what they want, you can ask them that question. Like mm -hmm. often, would you like to hear from us? You know, we have, you know, this content that's available weekly or monthly or quarterly and allow yeah. the donor to tell you what, what their frequency preferences are. And, uh, you know, find ways to automate the process that maybe if they become more engaged over time, um, that you ask them to revisit that thought, you know, you, just because it's quarterly now, doesn't mean that it will always be quarterly, but um, until they've become that higher level investor, where they're just really excited about your mission and whatnot, and then they get that opportunity to say, you know, we do have more frequent information about X, Y, and Z. Um, if you want to change your preferences, here's how you do it requires some automation. It requires making that um, ability for the for that person to come in and say, yeah, you know what? I, I am more excited about this now. I do want to step up. Or, you know what? This is actually a little bit more than I'm comfortable with right now. And I don't want to lose you completely. So I'm going to choose this lower level or whatever it might be. Um, and there's a lot to learn from that too, as to how the the donors and the constituents are viewing the value of this work versus how we as staff feel we are the most valuable nonprofit there has ever been in the world. Right. That's exactly right. Um, so as, as people do this acquisition piece of things to learn, you know, I came in because a friend was, you know, um, doing a fundraising campaign in honor of a birthday or whatever. Um, you know, part of what has got me so interested in, in your work and your research in particular was, you know, some years ago, an organization I was working with, the executive director, um, uh, had a birthday and, and Facebook said, hey, shouldn't you raise money for your charity uh, for your birthday? And he's like, that's a great idea. Absolutely. Click yes. Yes. Send out to everybody in the world. Um, hadn't asked me about any of that. And of course, had not integrated any data collection from Facebook. So, you know, we, we got a check for a couple thousand dollars three months later. Um, but no connection with donors, no way to know who gave because it was his birthday, no way to recognize them and thank them in any personal way. Um, and I think that that's part of the challenge of working with folks to go automation doesn't mean that it happened automatically. It means we, we've planned for how we're going to do that, not that it happened rogue uh, wise. So when you hear people thinking of donor acquisition through third party things like a Facebook or whatever, um, what are you learning and how are you in engaging with folks that, that think about those channels? Yeah. I mean, our, our very first initiative is just trying to get people out of Facebook into yeah. a page that we yeah. can control. So, so, you know, um, and there's a variety of ways that we do that. Number, number one, like when we're doing Facebook acquisition on Facebook, rarely are we asking for a gift. Usually we're offering something of value to the potential donor, whether that be a piece of content or some, uh, opportunity to respond to some sort of advocacy issue or whatever. We're trying to get them out of Facebook onto a landing page that we can control. And then the first objective is to get that person to raise their hand and provide their email address. Because once I have that, once I have their interests and I have a way to contact them, I can build the relationship with them over time. Yeah. 
really important, I think, to well, and assuming, of course, that they're going to then open and read the email. I think that that's one of the challenges that I hear with people is, um, you know, the they they see Facebook as something that people are going to and, and engaging with on a more regular basis than perhaps they're responding to email tools. But I think that's more of a function of are you giving them something in email that's valuable to them versus, you know, Facebook somehow has that. Precisely. That's exactly right. Yeah. So as we look at the acquisition component of this, you know, there's a, a lot of things we can be looking at how automation can support people engaging around that. Where are you coming from? Because it is going to be that human connection thing that really inspires that donor to come to the table in the first place. But it also is, I think, that same human connection that encourages them to up their donation or give more frequently or become a recurring donor or whatever the next level of engagement may be. As you think about your experiments from initial donor to you know that second donation or that other thing, um, what are you more interested in learning about right now that that gets people to continue to go up that engagement path? Yeah. So there, there's a number of things that we've learned that um, honestly could be abused, like things that could potentially, you know, um, game the system, right? Meaning like, I, I know that there's different kinds of levers we can pull that will, you know, get like a, a higher, uh, you know, second gift rate right now. Um but what we're finding when we do some of the like more longitudinal studies is that just because I can doesn't mean I should, right? Yeah. Because there's there's two different ways you can approach the donor. One where you're trying to you know basically extract as much value as you can from them today and cast them away tomorrow, which should not be the goal. Um, or two where you're trying to build a life, life you know lifetime relationship with the donor so that they you know they give their first gifts. Maybe they continue to give over time. Maybe they migrate to a mid-level or major donor. And then maybe 20, 30 years from now, they leave you a legacy gift, right? That's yeah. the ultimate goal. If you're just looking at, at digital in a vacuum, then you would treat it like the former, where it's just kind of like an ATM machine and you, you know, churn and burn. And, and you know, it's, it's this constant cycle that's a vicious cycle. So what we're doing now is actually we've partnered with the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy in the UK, Dr. Adrian Sargent and Dr. Jen Shang. We appointed the Next Actor Fellow who's really trying to take some of the pioneering work they're doing in philanthropic psychology and adapt it into testable opportunities with some of our research partners online. And this is getting into like some of the more like academic theory stuff, but trying to make it more uh, practical and usable. Uh, and we've been seeing some really positive results. The end goal of this, this, this work is really how do we, um, how do we improve uh, retention rate of our donors, which is a, we know is an epidemic in, in the nonprofit space. I mean, like donors, you know, retain, you know, maybe on the high end, like for an average organization, like 40% uh, across all segments, that's mm -hmm. not great. Um, and then also, how do we actually like when a donor gives a gift, how do we actually use that experience as a way to build their well-being and leave them in a better place? So, so that's kind of what we're really focusing on now, like big picture wise. Interesting, because I, I agree that more of us should be thinking about that lifetime journey of, you know, uh, people staying engaged as donors at the right level for them, maybe when they're um, in that place of feeling more inspired that they, they up their gift, but think about that legacy gift later on or whatever the, the other thing is. 
those are important tracks to keep engaging people. I like how you're talking about how are we leaving them feeling? You know, are they um, feeling good about their gifts and, you know, kind of connected to what we're doing and all the rest? Um, let me ask you, though, as we're, we are starting to run a little low on time, and I want to make sure I leave you some time for any thoughts that have been inspired that I haven't had a chance to get to yet. But I do want to ask about the other end of that spectrum of um, when, when do we let go? Uh, when do we recognize that um, that organizational contact uh, that gave once, you know, four years ago, and, and we've, you know, tried to revive a relationship with in a few different ways, um, that they're not coming back. Now, I think one way to do it, of course, is to just ask them. Um, but uh, how long do you recommend trying to find out, are they just disinterested because they're busy right now? Or should, should we really sort of understand that that was a one-time experience that they're not likely to repeat and we should ease off the gas? Yeah. So let let me tell you a little story. So this is, um, I guess this is, this, this kind of answers your question, but it also points to the danger of not paying attention to the, the indirect, um, you know, communication that you're receiving from your donors through their behavior. So mm-hmm. we were working with this organization. Um, they are a very heavy email sender. Uh, they were sending two email fundraising appeals per week. Oh my right? goodness. I'm a crazy, right? Okay. And they have a list of several hundred thousand uh, people that are donors on the file. And they're just like, just, you know, hammering them. And um, they said, you know, hey, we need your help. Um, our email engagement has gone off a cliff. Our online donations have gone off a cliff. So we took a, a, a 12 month snapshot of data mm-hmm. and we looked at their email send volume and it re- remained relatively consistent every single month. So they're sending the same volume of email. But then we overlaid uh, two very important pieces of data. First was uh, a line that showed the percentage of people that um, delete their emails without even opening. Mm-hmm. And the second line it was the, the percentage of people that open and read their, their emails. Well, the percentage of people that delete without even opening was consistently above the line where the people would actually open and read their message. And it had been that way for quite some time. And then the two lines kind of separated and they kept going up. You know, one was going up and the other one was going down. Um and then we, we looked at one other piece of data, which is the average uh, aggregate um, weighted inboxing. So, so just, just to uh, explain what that means, because it's kind of a technical term. So all email service providers like Gmail and Yahoo, they're looking at and monitoring like, you know, whether or not you're engaging with certain senders. And um, if you don't engage with a certain center for a long period of time, then they kind of give that center a, a, a bad mark and they may mm. move that, that to either the junk folder or to uh, the promotions tab, sure. which basically means that it's invisible because you're never going to go there, right? Well, when we looked at that at the very beginning, when they started sending emails, they were getting 78% average weighted inboxing by the end of that experience, because they were not paying attention to the data and taking appropriate actions. 28% average weighted inboxing. So the reason why they're giving and everything fell off a cliff is because their emails weren't going into the inbox anymore. They weren't going into the inbox anymore because they kept just pummeling people that didn't want to hear from them anymore. So uh, separate story, we, 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 we put a solution in place and we, we solved that. But here's, here's to answer your specific question. If a donor has not engaged with email, and let's say that you're sending on average like one or two times per month, if they haven't engaged in the last 90 days, so that's three full months of disengagement, 
you need to stop sending to them those regular messages. That doesn't mean that you completely delete them from your file. You need to move them off of your regular send list. And what you need to do is uh, put them into some sort of re-engagement series. So that would be like maybe a series of two or three messages. One that asks a question, hey, what's going on? What happened? Second one saying, hey, would you like us to change your preferences? The third you know, offers them something of value and says, hey, this is the last time um, you're going to hear from us. And then at that point, you need to, to let them go. Because if you do not let go of those people that have said with their behavior that we don't want to hear from you anymore, then the people that do want to hear from you can't hear from you because your emails aren't going into the inbox anymore. You know, a really important message, I think, about other people's automation impacting your process that with so much uh, of the email in this country going through large service providers like the Gmails and Yahoo and et cetera groups, that if if that impacts your deliverability because what you're doing is you know too much or whatever the reason was that it didn't get open, um, that changes your opportunities to, to re-engage those folks that they're just not likely to see it. That's super helpful to think about when you're planning these things. Things, but we are um, just about out of time. So as, as we're ready to wrap up, are there some final thoughts you wanted to share about what you're learning and where you're excited to go next? Yeah, I, I thought I might uh, just kind of end by just sharing, you know, out of all of the testing and out of all the experimentation uh, that we've done, we've come to kind of a, a simple but yet like profound conclusion, you know, that, that, that people don't give to email machines, they don't give to websites, they don't give to direct mail campaigns, they don't give to races or to, you know, events, people give to people, mm -hmm. right? And the more that we can humanize our communication, the better we are. So I, I want to close with this, this one little piece that um, we drafted several, several years ago. Um, and it's, it's, it's called the Fundraiser's Creed. And it begins with something called the donor's protest. So keep in mind, this is coming first <laughs> okay. from the donor's point of view, okay? I am not a target. I am a person. Don't market to me. Communicate with me. Don't wear out my name and call me friend until we know each other. And when you say give now, I hear hype. Clarity trumps persuasion. Don't sell. Say I don't give to websites, I give to people. And here's a clue. I dislike organizations for the same reason I dislike people. Stop begging. It's disgusting. And, and why is your fundraising voice different from your real voice? That <laughs> the people I trust don't patronize me. In all cases where the quality of information is debatable, I will always resort to the quality of the source. My trust is not for sale. You need to earn it. Dazzle me gradually. Tell me what you can't do, and I might believe you when you tell me what you can do. In case you still don't get it, I don't trust you. Your copy is arrogant, your motives seem selfish, and your claims sound inflated. If you want to change the way I give, you first have to change the way in which you communicate. It's pretty harsh, right? <laughs> I actually it's, found that very inspiring. I, I really liked that. It's it's it, but it is the reality of what we're facing because of all the things you mentioned, Steve. That like we're not just competing against other nonprofits; we're competing against every single for-profit nonprofit organization on planet Earth that is battling for our attention. Right. And so we can get out ahead of that. So here's here's the three article fundraisers creed. So this is something for for all of the, your listeners to consider. Article one, we believe that people give to people, that people don't give to organizations or from websites, that people give to people. Fundraising is not about programs. It's about relationships. 
Article two, we believe that brand is just reputation, that fundraising is just a conversation and giving is an act of trust. Hmm. Trust is earned with two elements, integrity and effectiveness. And both demand that you put the interests of your donor first. And finally, article three, we believe that testing trumps speculation and that clarity trumps persuasion. Fundraisers need to base their decisions on honest data and donors need to base their decisions on honest claims. If we can put those principles to place and into place within our organizations, we may be surprised uh, not only like how much better our results are, but actually how much more fulfilling our relationships are with our donors. Uh, I'm going to assume you have those available on your website somewhere. Is that a fair guess? We do. Actually, right. they're available as posters that people can print down, print and hang up in their office. So we, we will, of course, have uh, links to Next After, but I'm going to make sure we get some direct links to those uh, in particular, because I find that um, a wonderful challenge to live up to, the the how I feel as a donor piece, but also that that um, deliberate creed. So thank you for sharing those, Tim. That's, that's fantastic. We are, unfortunately, uh, at the end of our time, so I'm going to uh, just take a moment and say uh, thank you to uh, uh, to Tim Kaczurek, who is the CEO and founder of Next, Act, Next After. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Tim. My pleasure, Steve. Thank you.